Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. I went to college at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. I wanted to study the best technology in the world. At the time, I thought this was things like jet engines, electronics, GPS satellites. And about my first year in, I realized that I'd made a massive mistake and that chicken I'd left behind on the farm, which takes like grain and a little water and every day makes an egg, which is like this unbelievably good food and also can be another chicken is like actually really cool technology and, and way cooler than a jet engine. All right, Eben, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be uh, speaking with you again. We first connected maybe about six months ago, and I got a really nice intro to kind of your climate story, as it were, back then, which I've always uniquely enjoyed. Do you mind catching our listeners up on kind of the story of how you started working with mycelium and what got you interested in building in climate? Sure, happy to. If I run the clock way back, I think my interest starts when I was born on the floor of a Vermont farmhouse, and I spent 18 years growing up on a farm around nature and tried desperately to escape that. So I went to college at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. I wanted to study the best technology in the world. At the time, I thought this was things like jet engines, electronics, GPS satellites. And about my first year in, I realized that I'd made a massive mistake and that chicken I'd left behind on the farm which takes like grain and a little water and every day makes an egg, which is like this unbelievably good food and also can be another chicken is like actually really cool technology and, and way cooler than a jet engine. <laughs> I couldn't switch gears then. I had to complete my mechanical engineering education, but I think that's when I became like re-obsessed with nature and biology and this question of how we could use nature to live in better harmony with Spaceship Earth. It wasn't until my senior year, though, that I met a really influential individual who I really owe my progress in this space to and an ecovative, Bert Swerzy. He worked with Edwin Land at Polaroid. He later retired, started his own businesses, and eventually became a professor of invention, which is really weird, actually. You know, he teaches people how to invent at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. He was inspirational. He was super annoying. But when I was a senior, I took his class. It was called Inventor Studio. And the purpose was to come up with a technology that could benefit people on Earth or the planet. There was something that was new that you could patent it. And if you did those two things, the intention was actually to start a business and commercialize it. And I took his class and actually submitted my senior project early. I developed this wind turbine with no blades. It was like this whistle that would make this like middle C note on the hills when wind went through it. I thought it was really cool. And I submitted it. And he basically came back to me and was like, this is not good enough. This is like might help in high wind areas offshore, but like this won't change the world. And so I like freaked out because I had like seven days left to come up with a new final project. And I was like, you know what? I had this really weird idea a few years ago at school, which I never submitted, which was like <laughs> using mycelium to bind ag waste together to create an insulating board, like growing insulation. I'll just submit this to him, you know, hail Mary pass at the end. And I submitted it. Yeah. And I came in and he was like, this is amazing. He had this checklist of like, is it innovative? Is it patentable? Can it be scalable? Is it unique? Can it like, these are home compostable materials. Can they help Spaceship Earth? And he's like, you got to do this. And I'm like, cool. Awesome. I'm all set. So he was like, well, I'll pass you, but you got to promise to take the class again next semester. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh man, okay. But that turned out to be amazing. I teamed up with another classmate, Gavin McIntyre. We took the class and it was just like an independent study. And when we graduated, we ended up starting Ecovative and Burt became our first investor and sort of the rest is history. Yeah, I love that analogy that you started with as the chicken as advanced technology. There's so much happening across the climate space, but frequently kind of what people call nature-based solutions are really solutions that are all nature to a certain extent are powerful and cheap and scalable. So that's a wonderful place to focus. For listeners who might not be as familiar with mycelium and you know all of its potential benefits, what's kind of like the zero to one that folks should know 
Well, I think the application that we're probably best known for and one of our first was in protective packaging. When we started Ecovative, Ecovative is still very much about like benefiting the planet. But when we started, we were like 100% mission oriented as a business. And we focused on what anyone in business school will tell you is a horrible business plan, which is we went after what we thought was the most egregious environmental polluter, styrofoam, which ends up in our oceans and even in our body and is used a lot in single use packaging. But it's also like really, really cheap. But our first product was a replacement for styrofoam packaging. It's called mushroom packaging. It's produced worldwide. And you use it just like you use styrofoam, like might come around a toaster or a computer. But when it gets to your house, you can just throw it in the garden or in the woods and it totally returns to nature. It's 100% home compostable. And that was sort of our first zero to one product. And for people that might not know anything about mycelium at all, what would you tell those folks in 60 to 90 seconds about what it is and why it's so uniquely well-suited to grow materials? Well, mycelium is everywhere on Spaceship Earth. It's really hidden mostly behind your feet or underneath your feet. And broadly speaking, it's like the root structure of mushrooms. And it's really how mushrooms spend most of their lives. So mushrooms mostly live underground in this mycelium form. And mushrooms are part of kingdom fungi, which is like the most underappreciated kingdom on this planet. And mycelium to me is like an alien technology. It's full of all these amazing properties. It can be used for medicine. It can be used for bioremediation. And the way we use it is to grow materials with structure. And I just view it as this incredible technology we've ignored. And with a little help from humans, it can do what it's always done, which is support life on Spaceship Earth. We're figuring out how to grow mycelium in unique ways to support life on Spaceship Earth for humans that now live in a hyper-industrialized society. And I think it's a technology that can really allow us to have many of the same products, everyday products we love and enjoy, without such a massive footprint on the planet. And to provide some perspective on all the different applications that fast forwarding a number of years that you all are working on now, packaging, you know, in my mind continues to be a really important use case for mycelium. But what's kind of like the full scope of all the different types of materials that you all envision that this could be useful for? We started in the bulk, high volume, let's call them lower value materials where there's a lot of impact to be made. So, you know, we developed a protective packaging product, mushroom packaging building materials, building insulation, uh, building bricks, high-density building boards that replace urea formaldehyde. We have a licensee in the Netherlands now that's growing coffins, so loop, because burial is actually a really huge industry, and there's like actually a fair amount of toxic chemicals that go into that. I would say there's like a triangle, so there's usually like one or two high-impact applications, like getting rid of all plastic packaging would be really high-impact for the planet. And then there's like a triangle beneath each of these where there's like a thousand and one other things you could do. Thematically, the other big areas we're focused on are animal agriculture. So things like bacon or steak, like how can we make a better bacon or steak without animals um, and plastic pollution. And so those are kind of our big thrusts right now. And you mentioned kind of like the licensing model. That's something that I want to talk about a little bit more later on. But in terms of customers with whom you're already working with, let's take packaging as an example. What is kind of that outreach process look like or how are folks finding you and what are the conversations look like with someone who is using plastic packaging but is interested in potentially switching to what you all provide what are some of like the questions that they ask the biggest concerns that they have and how do you pitch that to them beyond perhaps just purely the sustainability perspective which is obviously important it is though i'll say in packaging like most important is like the product gets there in good shape because like if the product breaks on the way that's not very sustainable and then two is cost like it's still being driven by cost we've gotten the packaging business to a point where we have a very attractive value proposition for folks that need a molded shape so something with geometry in it to protect a fragile object that could be a glass bottle or it could be a 200 pound offboard boat motor we're actually a very cost-effective solution in comparison to other plastics or cardboards in that regime. 
I'll tell you though, that's changed a lot in terms of the perception. So 10 years ago when we launched the product, there really wasn't enthusiasm for like an organic home compostable packaging material. In fact, folks really wanted like the clearest plastic, the most virgin plastic, like that was the ethos. And so that is something we developed like 13 years ago, hasn't evolved a lot technically. And I did have to pitch and sell a lot and explain like why you might not want to have styrofoam packaging. And now it's totally the opposite. I'd say over the last four years, three years, like the market has come to us and the prices have actually gone up a lot too, partially by the kind of boom in commodity prices we've seen. So we've become even more competitive. Yeah. I mean, that's good to hear that, as you said, customers are coming to you and it's good to hear that folks are really getting conscious about the sustainability quotient and that's a driving factor for the business. How many customers are you currently working with in that capacity? And can you provide a sense of like the scale of plastic pollution that you're perhaps already displacing by using your technology instead? Yeah, there were two or three million mushroom packaging products produced last year. So that's in the US, uh, the UK, Netherlands, Bulgaria, and to a small extent, New Zealand right now. So we're, we're talking millions of dollars of annual revenue. That's great. I'm proud to be there both we produce in the U.S. exclusively, so Ecovative is the exclusive U.S. producer, and then we license folks internationally. But the good or bad news is that's a tiny fraction of the certain world packaging use. And so there's still a huge amount of growth that needs to occur or can occur, I'd say, for that to be truly impactful. So I'm sort of happy to be in the true commercial scale level there, but you know, between us like and your audience, there's a lot more to do. I can definitely imagine that I mean, part of it is obviously demand-driven, which it sounds like is picking up, which is great. But part of it's also building out that manufacturing capacity. It's a little bit different than traditional manufacturing, certainly, because you're growing materials, as we've discussed. But yeah, being able to scale up that capacity to meet a lot more demand as it comes. How are you thinking about scaling your own ability to produce this stuff? And what are kind of the key unlocks that I'm going to help accelerate that. Well, we learned a lot from packaging because packaging, our packaging plants are actually custom plants. The technology we developed to grow mycelium into like compostable objects is basically involves taking mycelium, which is like you can imagine is like a almost like a seed on a piece of grain and putting it in a mold. So a plastic container or a metal container that has like basically ag waste wood chips in it. So you like almost like plant these mycelial seeds in it over five days. The mycelium comes out of the seeds. It digests the wood chips and it converts it into this white flour fluffy, soft packaging material. So rather than like thermofolding, molding or plastic injection, which is really fast, it's like a five day grow mold process. It's really cool. It happens at room temperature. The only byproducts are CO2 and water vapor, but each plan is bespoke. So scaling mushroom packaging has been harder because we did have to design and build our own facilities. Over the last decade, we designed like super advanced facilities with robots. We've since actually simplified those a lot to make it easier for folks to start their own businesses locally. Engineers sometimes over-engineer. But building new factories is hard. And when you talk about global scale, it's like really hard to get to global scale. So that actually led to the development of our second mycelium platform, which is a pure mycelium, which grows above the substrate. So you can imagine it sort of grows up and above if you had a like a tray and it forms this like beautiful pillow of pure mycelium. We went in that direction for two reasons. One, it's sort of the next evolution and allows us to produce far higher performing materials. It allows us to address some really new interesting markets that relate to big problems, like growing leather-like materials or growing whole cuts of meat like bacon. And then the most important part on that is it allows us to use existing mushroom farms. So there's 3 billion pounds of mushrooms produced annually in these sort of like giant indoor farms. And we're actually able to convert these farms to grow this next generation mycelium. 
what that does is it allows you to scale really quickly because you don't actually need to build new factories. You can actually go to these existing farmers and say, hey, you've been growing the same crop for 100 years. You're totally pinched by your buyer. You barely make any margin. We'd love to bring you a new industrial crop. How many folks have you already approached that were growing mushrooms previously but are now working with you to grow kind of that pure mycelium instead? We've talked to a lot of farms in the US and in Europe, and I'll say the response this is a little wonkish, but if you get into like liquid fermentation, like growing microbes in tanks to make like different materials or products, like there's a shortage of tanks right now and no one's building them. So there's like all these folks coming up with great ideas and there's not going to be any manufacturing capacity to make these products. The mushroom industry is like truly the opposite. Like these farmers are hungry for something new. They're really excited about what we're doing. And we've already entered into partnerships with farms. So we're working with a farm in Canada, Whitecrest Mushrooms. They've already piloted this technology and are starting to grow our product there. And they're going to be one of the first suppliers for our food business. Yeah, that's a good segue because I do, you know, we've talked a bit about packaging, but I am really interested to speak a little bit more about kind of all these other applications that we've gestured towards, whether it be materials for fashion or food. How does adapting kind of the pure mycelium for those different applications, like what does that involve? And is that an area where you kind of get more into the licensing side of the business or is that stuff that you all do in-house as well? Well, I'll answer two ways. From a technology perspective, our kind of thesis is something called the forager's secret. And that's for each of these problems or market opportunities, if you will, there's already a mushroom in nature that solves the problem. So in food, this is kind of obvious. You've got really meat-like mushrooms, like the beefsteak polypore, you know, other mushrooms that like taste like pork or taste like chicken, like chicken of the woods or hen of the woods. And they already exist. Like they're just hard to find. You got to like forage them at the right time of the year. If you cultivate them conventionally, they're like ultra expensive and they grow in the shape of mushrooms, but you can make really realistic bites of meat from these fungi. And so our sort of modus operandi is literally we go hiking in the woods. We find these fungi growing on trees. We take little cellular biopsies of them in our backpacks, right? You're just like cloning a plant. You just take a little cutting. And then we take it back to our lab and we sort of re, they're immortal, right? So we keep the cells alive. And then we regrow them, not in the shape of a mushroom, but in sheets that are 50 feet long, four feet wide, a foot tall, or six inches tall. And that allows us to basically make mass quantities of that tissue, if you will, that in the case of food, we slice up, like it's a culinary process. We just slice it up and make bacon, just like it's a pork belly. And in the case of leather, we go out into nature and find very leather-like mushrooms and grow large sheets of that. And then you take a slice the other way and you get like a 50 foot long hide. In terms of businesses, we have different approaches based on the market. In the case of like packaging and other things in the, like you could grow with mycelium composites, building materials or coffins or what have you, we license quite promiscuously. We'd love to have people come up with new applications and businesses around it. We know we can't do everything. We provide raw materials, we provide tech training, and we just love to see people come up with things and create businesses. For our newer stuff, we really try and focus on what I call the trim tab opportunities. So these are the areas of greatest leverage. And the criteria, you know, is it has to be a pressing problem for Spaceship Earth. It has to be able to be a really great business. This is so we can scale. Like in capitalism, we need to be able to scale in capitalism. So it needs to be a great business. And if those things are true, we've actually been creating distinct companies. So for our food business, we spun out a whole new company and got food-focused investors. First of all, I want to say the next time y'all go hiking in the woods looking for mushrooms for new potential applications, I hope I get the invite. That sounds awesome. But <laughs> I also love the, uh, I mean, I love, I don't know if pragmatism is the right word, but you don't often necessarily in tech see companies get as excited about this licensing approach. Like people find something really novel and unique and almost kind of want to monopolize it in a way. But when the goal is to reduce all these different 
pollutants across the entire world. Like that makes a ton of sense. And it's very laudable that y'all are helping other folks kind of leverage the technology and scale and kind of acting as an incubator in that way. And towards kind of the last part you mentioned, which is about spinning out new companies, I've also seen you all do some kind of like investing in other mycelium and mushroom companies recently. I think one was the Magical Mushroom Company out of the UK. Is that kind of part of the same approach where, you know, you see something really exciting and you're excited to allocate some capital towards that as well? Yeah, that was an exception because exactly that. The operator there, Paul, has done such a phenomenal job that we did. We got really excited about what they're doing and wanted to be an even bigger part of it. A little story on that, if you don't mind. Please. We had never intended to license packaging internationally. Um, <laughs> when we did that with Paul, which was three or four years ago now, you know, we really were doubling down on this air mycelium process for leather and for bacon. And I'd instructed the team to devote like basically 110% of our focus to it. It's like, we can't be distracted at all. And Paul was really trying to get us to license him. And he flew across the ocean finally, and he sat in our lobby all day. And so finally, I was like, typically, I, I don't anymore lies of last week, but I used to sit at the front desk. So it's a great way to like figure out people when they come in because they think I'm the receptionist. And so Paul came and he sat there all day long. And so finally, I was like, I can't believe it. this guy flew all the way across the ocean. He's sitting in our offices. And ultimately, <laughs> we licensed him and he's done a great job. He's raised a bunch of money in the EU and he's built three factories and, you know, he's just really bringing this to life there. And so, yeah, we wanted to make sure we supported him and we think it's a great business. We wanted to be shareholders. <laughs> yeah, there's always, uh, as you mentioned earlier, within this capitalist system, it's okay to have some of those financial motivators too. I want to back up a step and ask what was kind of the inflection point where you did start? What was the first time you started kind of exploring the licensing model? Because I'm sure that was much earlier on in the business, but I'd be curious to hear more about kind of that moment and what the consideration set was. I want to just touch on your point, which is like in tech, you don't see this a lot and there's this desire to monopolize ideas. And I just want to share, like, we've also suffered from that. And when we started early on, keep in mind, I was 21 when I invented this field. We were very scared about that. And like many entrepreneurs, like, you know, secretive and didn't want people to steal our work. And we didn't license promiscuously in the beginning at all. We licensed to a couple large corporations. We sort of built our own stuff. And it was about five or six years in, I I looked around. I'm like, geez, no one else is doing this. Like that could be really bad. Like, you know, I've been working on this for so long and like, is this a bad idea? And also if I believe this is really good for the planet, like this isn't a way to have impact. And it was that knowledge that sort of like has brought us in this direction. So around that time period, we created something called GIY, Grow It Yourself. And we basically started making these like $10 dehydrated bags of our material available to students on our website or anyone really, and really tried to do like the Apple computer model, which was like, let's get this into schools and get this into people's hands and see what they come up with. And of course, the natural extension of that is, well, you can't really like have these patents if you're not going to like allow people to use them. And so we created GIY, which is like a blanket license to make a thousand pounds of whatever you want from a single bag. We then created super GIY, which is sort of like people wanted to create businesses. And then in the past few years, we've gotten much more, as I said, promiscuous on if entrepreneurs come to us, they're in a region, we don't have anyone working. It's not around one of our core businesses, which is mostly packaging. It's like, yes, absolutely. No money up front. We'll give you a license. If you want training, you can have it. You don't ever want to talk to us again. Like, that's fine. But like, please go for it. Yeah, it's like the business grows like mycelium grows now to a certain extent, which is to say really vibrantly. <laughs> it also moves us more towards being a shovels, picks and shovels provider, right? So selling high quality raw materials, selling the tools. We've got 15 years of technical testing and knowledge. Like we would really love to see that amplified and amplified in a way that allows others to build great stuff. Yeah, and hopefully we see more of this across 
other impactful climate technologies because, you know, the speed and scale that's required to confront all the problems facing us. I think this is a really interesting model to drive more impact. So yeah, I'm super glad that I asked for a little more detail on that. That story is great. So last year, you all raised your Series D. Congratulations on that. Certainly, you know, a mature business in many, many respects. What's next for you all? I mean, I imagine, you know, continuing to grow that capacity and build some more plants is critical. But what else is front of mind, you know, now that we're already halfway through the year in 2022? Great question. I mean, just to recap, like what we did with that, in the last year, we've built three factories. So we built the largest mycelium raw material plant in the world. That's called Swerzy Silos, an homage to Bert Swerzy, our late mentor. Farm One, which will be the largest aerial mycelium production facility in the world. So this sort of process we use to grow food and leather. And that'll produce about $20 million of bacon at full capacity. We're having our ribbon cutting for that next week. And a big bacon processing plant. So just for your listeners at home, we took the money and we spent it all on stealing concrete in the ground to make stuff. But what's coming up next is uh, we're going to operate those plants. We want to show to the world that we don't just have a great engineering team and can deploy these projects in adverse circumstances quickly, but also show that we can operate them profitably and that you know we can make huge amounts of these materials. And we're planning to duplicate that infrastructure in Europe for our hide and leather business, which is growing mycelium into leather-like hides that can turn into leather-like materials across many different like verticals in that industry. That's great. And for folks that are listening who are curious about maybe trying the bacon or figuring out where they might be able to get a fashion product that integrates the material or even order something else that comes delivered in your packaging, where are the right places for them to look and explore that stuff? Well, for my bacon, which is now expanding into multiple retail locations, you can find it in upstate New York and Western Mass. Honestway Food Co-op, other natural grocers in the region. And we're adding about a store every three weeks right now. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll continue right down the Hudson River into New York City this fall. If you're uh, interested in packaging, you can go to mushroompackaging.com. And you can, if you're a packaging customer, you can buy packaging there. You can also see all the different brands that are using mushroom packaging if you would like to get some. And that's everything from you know candles to perfume to boat motors to electronics. Leather is not yet available. So we have just announced Forger last year and have just started scaling up that team and process. We've announced, I think, four or five great brand partners, and we have three or four others that are well-known names that are not public. And those materials will start to hit the market next year in limited quantities. And as I mentioned, we're going to be building a facility in Europe next year to produce those in mass quantities, but that won't be until 2024. So 2024, Fashion Week in Paris, keep an eye out on the runway. That's when we'll start to see the leather. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you'll probably see it next year and then in your, your favorite retailer in 2024, because we want to make it available for everyone. Nice. Yeah, and I'm excited for, for bacon to make its way down the river towards New York City, where I am, as you kind of mentioned. That'd be great to see it in stores here, too. I want to ask one, you know, really, maybe it's more of like a moonshot question around the packaging side, but, you know, I just moved into a new place and regrettably had to probably could have avoided it, but ordered a bunch of stuff from Amazon. So that comes with a bunch of plastic. Is there a world where your technology can serve the needs of a distributor at that scale? Or is it going to have to be, which would also be fine, a patchwork of things like mycelium and other solutions for plastic packaging? You probably won't like it, but it's, I think the answer is it's everything above. It's a patchwork. So mycelium is not a panacea for the global plastic problem, not even in packaging. It can be a huge part of it. It might contribute to 10 to 30% of the total solution. But mycelium is more likely to be inside the box that you get from Amazon that the product's in. So that TV you bought that has like the corner protectors on it, or that coffee maker that comes out and there's like shells around it. The little air pillows that are in the box are like not for us. Someone else brilliant out there is going to have to solve that one. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I got a new air fryer and that had like the classic kind of styrofoam cage around it inside the box. So that sounds like the right application for what y'all are working on. You got it. And in terms of people who might be really interested about doing similar work themselves, what would you say to them in terms of, you know, either encouragement, places to start, or even potentially some open roles that you have and and are hiring for? First thing I would say is you can do it. Believe in yourself. And like the best way to move forward in one of these spaces is to jump in with both feet. More practically, we are always looking for mission aligned people to join our team, particularly right now in our production and science teams. So if what I've been talking about sounds like something that resonates with your personal ethos and you're getting excited about mycelium biology, even if you know nothing about it, like I'd love to hear from you and, and you can email my alter ego directly, stone at ecovative.com. And I'm also curious, you know, beyond COVID, of what other climate technologies are you particularly excited about and what else has your ear, you know, whether it be in policy or people working on really interesting stuff? Well, I have a sweet spot for folks who use biology and use the whole organism to create new products. So the history of biology and synthetic biology, starting with insulin in like the 70s, is like we're going to reprogram cells as factories. You've probably heard this pitch. And we're going to feed them sugar and they're going to like poop out these valuable molecules. Like it could be insulin or it could be some new sweetener. And then we throw away the cell, which is like the most magical, incredible part of it. It's like the factory that made that little molecule, which means you're also throwing away most of the value and sort of tends to make these biological solutions, I believe, very expensive and limits their use. So I have a really sweet spot for people who use biology, like, you know, we use the whole organism mycelium to grow stuff, folks who use biology that way. And so I'm inspired by entrepreneurs like Ginger, who runs Biomason. So they grow bricks, like they make a bio cement using a bacteria. The bacteria precipitates this like calcification reaction, and eventually like you get a whole cloth brick at the end. Really inspired by uh, Colorifics, saw them at Biofabricate this year. They're using bacteria to dye fabrics which folks have been working on for a long time. But unlike most folks who are using bacteria or algae to make like an ink that you then extract and you put in a conventional like dyeing process, they put the bacteria right in the tank where the typical tank that the dye would go in, like at the dyer. And the bacteria actually force the colors out of their cell wall because they don't want them in there. And they like adhere to them to the cotton fibers. And again, that's like a beautiful use of like you synthesized in the bacteria. You're putting the bacteria right in the same industrial dye tank that normally gets the dye. And the bacteria is actually doing the work, which means you can use like less energy, lower temperatures of pushing the dye onto the fibers. So I'm very inspired by those types of solutions. Yeah, that gives me, I've heard of Biomason for sure, but that gives me a couple companies to, uh, to go and check out myself. And how about outside of work? You do some really interesting stuff around thinking about how to personally live more sustainably. I'd be interested in hearing what's up in uh, upstate New York and what you're working on out there on the home front. I think, you know, there's this like talk the talk, walk the walk thing you should do. And I've had the great opportunity to live off grid the past decade. So about 10 years ago, my wife and I bought a parcel of land right outside of Troy. First year, we just lived in a tent which was epic, but also horrible because <laughs> it gets cold up here. Yeah. And then a few years later, we built a timber frame one-room cabin, which we lived in for five years. So I had running water, but I hauled all the water in. And of course, like no toilet, no septic system. And then most recently, because I have kids now, I built a real house, a timber frame, and installed my own micro hydro plant, uh, solar panels. I got a battery pack out of someone's totaled Model S, a uh, really great place to get cheap batteries. And have a fully like off-grid homestead now. You know, we make our own power, we make our own water. We're working on growing our own food. I planted a lot of fruit trees, a lot of berries, and yeah, it's a dream and a joy. That does sound idyllic and also uniquely challenging. What's kind of been the most surprising thing about that over the I'm sure it's changed a lot over the past 10 years, but 
you know, what's something that you definitely didn't think going in that you've learned from that? And maybe even like applications back to being the CEO of a pretty big company at this point. Oh, yeah, let me answer that two ways. I guess on the, the, the thing I learned over this experience is that, you know, there's I think there's a lot of like romance around this idea of like returning to the land and living in a forest and living off grid and like reducing your footprint. I think that's admirable, but I got to be honest, like the reality is when we lived in a tent for a year, we did a pretty good job at that. But like building a like a self-sustaining off-grid homestead is not necessarily like resource efficient or good for the planet is my takeaway. I've built a place that I hope will be here for hundreds of years. I was really conscientious in how I did it. So like I used salvage car batteries, like I built a micro hydro, which is a really, really like material efficient way of making electrons. But even so, like the energy payback on what I did is long. And like the most sustainable thing might be to live in New York City, honestly. So that's sort of like my own journey on like, what can we do individually and what do we need to do as a world to live on Spaceship Earth? As it relates to the um, like lessons I learned, living off grid is kind of a lot like living on a farm, which is like, you never have what you need, stuff's always breaking and you have to be super creative. And so like, it reminded me, especially the first five to seven years when like I was trucking in water from work and like the power would go out at like 2 a.m. and like wouldn't have power. Like it was really <laughs> like growing up in Vermont. And so those really like I channeled my creativity and resilience. So you kind of have this resourcefulness, this creativity. My dad used to call it being a farm engineer. It's like when a belt breaks and you don't have any belts, like you can use duct tape to fix the belt, right? You like turn the duct tape roll into a belt. And so a startup is much the same. You know, you never enough money, you never enough people, like stuff's always on fire, unexpected things break. And, you know, sort of like keep calm and carry on and then just focus on what's most urgent and important. Don't let the noise get you down. Don't listen to the noise. Just really stay clear to like, what's your purpose? Why are we here? And what's the most important, urgent thing we can take care of today? That's powerful. Narrowing the focus can often be a big part of the solution. And then like your business does, you know, once you've learned how to do it, teaching other people how to do it. 10 years into or 10 years plus into the business and 10 years of off-grid living for you, I'm excited about all the progress that you all have made. It's great to have reconnected. Really nice to talk again. And uh, thanks for taking time. Thanks for being on, Evan. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.